boxes. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Not Boring Business Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Redman, founder of YourV1.com. This is not suits and handshakes business. This is not boring business. Let's go. Uh, this is our this is already me regretting not pushing record before you know <laughs> so uh i have i founded your v1 last april uh-huh. um so we've moved kind of fast at the same time like nothing's really figured out um but i have built three tech companies with no code tech yeah. and they were all six figures gotcha. so like yeah. I don't think anyone else on earth can state claim to that. That's fair. I know the one that I always hear of is Tara Reed um, of Apps Without Code, supposedly making a million dollars a year in revenue, but I don't know that there are that many out there. Like, is she, she's just talking about like the, her company? Yeah, that she, I think she made a, she made a product that either went through 500 startups or Y Combinator and then, um, makes money with it now but i don't know exactly what the okay so is. she has one like yeah. i have three right right and on the way to being four so it's pretty imp- i'm pretty impressed with myself like i and i think i just read an article which is one thing i mean why don't we kick it off this way that like for you and i to discuss if you can make money being in a no code because i just or building a no-code startup. Yeah. Like, there's obviously it's good to get you 80% of the way there or um, get you a little money in the door, right? But can you build a career out of it? And I was just reading an article or I was talking with someone about this, like in the no-code space, about can you make enough money and make a living doing no-code things? Yeah. So, like, I'd like to start, let's just start there really fast. And then we'll go back and then we'll go into your story. So what do you think about that? Yeah, for sure. So I know that I know that there are several founders who have built or are building startups currently on Adalo and you know, a bunch of them are full time on those startups. Um, I also know that so we recently launched our experts program, which basically gives our users access to really good skilled Adalo users, right? People who have built several apps and published in the app stores and all that. Now we have a marketplace of experts so that users can find experts to help work, work through their problems, basically. And a lot of those experts do no-code stuff full-time. A lot of them are not exclusive to Adalo, but a lot of them are like no-code agencies and things like that. So is it like a forum or a, like an actual marketplace? So we, we do have a forum, which is pretty active now, but that, that part is just like an actual marketplace. It's pretty lightweight at this point. It's just a page on our website that has all of our top experts and a way for you to get in touch with them. But dude, that's an amazing feature. Like I think, um, you guys are probably like farther product wise, I think than we are maybe like, and I have no idea. Like I go on your website. I love everything. I love your entire website. Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I haven't played with your tool at all. So that's hard to say, but I know that we're kind of, where we're really strong right now is, you know, we're a cross-platform tool. So it works on iOS, Android, and web. And we're also 
pretty flexible in terms of the data model and the design side both. Um, so you can you can really make your app fully customized. And I think that's not the case with some of the other, like I guess the previous generation of no code tools. With, yep. with the current generation of tools, a lot of them are like that, but we're the only one that's really the, class, the cross-platform tool that lets you do iOS, Android, or web. Yes. Um, and, and that's beneficial because if you're building a startup, usually you want it to be present in all of those areas, right? You want a web app that people can use if they're on their computer, and you want an Android and iOS apps if they're you know out in the world doing something. So that's I think that's really our advantage at this point. But um... that's a huge advantage. <laughs> like, and I think that's a, an incredibly good like step. Like it's uh, we started as more like a concierge thing where yeah. like people would simply type their idea in, and it would be more of a I'm feeling lucky Google result. Yeah. And like we'd put shit together with our builder and give it to them. Yeah. So like we were using our tool as just an internal tool and we're all non-technical. So we were saying, cool, here, pay this for a little while. And then and we became more like, we're like, cool, we can just give this to other people, but they don't know what we know. Right. Right. So in this no code space, how often are you, because you're technical, right? Uh-huh. So how often are you like injecting your technical expertise versus listening to the customer going, we want to see this. And how often are you implementing the stuff that the customers are saying versus like, yeah, I mean, so a lot of, a lot of what we build is based on what our customers directly ask for or what we can, the things that we hear a lot, you know, Um, we, we have a site called ideas.adala.com where you can submit feedback and submit app ideas or not really app ideas, but feature ideas for Adalo. And then other people can upvote those. And we use that in our planning process to help figure out what to build. And uh, that's that's definitely very important to us. From pretty early on, We so we did a similar thing to what you did early on. We launched sort of an agency and we built apps for people. We sure. built probably eight to 10 of those and published them to the app stores, um, some Android, some iOS, some web, but then really just got a lot of feedback and a lot of, we learned a lot as a as a group about what people are trying to build and how to build those features and how to do it well. Right. So that's that was kind of what we were doing at this point last year. Oh, this point last year. Okay. Wait. So when did you launch your thing? Like. So every- we we really launched the, I guess if you want to call it the consumer side or the do it yourself. We we kind of soft launched it in June of last year. Okay. But then we didn't actually push it anywhere besides MajorPad. Um, and then we did a big product hunt launch and got a little bit of press back in November. Oh, uh, wait. So the product launch was in November. Yeah. And then I missed the first date. Um, so back in end of May, beginning of June of last year, we pushed it out on MakerPad. So MakerPad's the biggest no-code community that probably most of your audience is familiar with at this point. But okay. um, they they helped us get some initial users and a lot of feedback but not the kind of numbers that we got when we actually did the bigger launch so like how many users do you have right now so right now i think last i checked it's somewhere around 20 or thirty thousand. Oh, nice like all on paid plans or do you have a no, premium no. model? so so our, our paid plans is a lot lower um we're by by the time you launch that i'm not sure when it'll go out but um we we have about 400 paying customers at this point oh nice okay I've always thought about like, I don't want to, I never wanted to give away like a freemium version. 
Yeah. Like, have you seen benefits of giving away a freemium version? Like, have you seen that? Is there a correlation? Like, yeah. So I, I think that there's, it definitely was a conscious decision to make because when we initially launched the do it yourself builder, um, we launched it as a free trial, but then you had to pay to convert and we saw super low conversion rates because I think we weren't hitting a broad enough audience. And in order to do that, we figured the best way would be to follow what developer tools have done and developer tools have always been freemium, you know, large mass audience. And then, you know, you actually get money from, you know, the small minority who want the additional more advanced feature set or who get far enough that they actually need to pay to get whatever else is behind the paywall. Right. Yeah. But we, I think that being in a competitive space, it made sense to us to just give away the product for free to use it at a basic level, but you can't actually publish a native mobile app and you can't publish it on a custom domain for web unless you pay. So those are the main the main triggers right now that drive people to pay is they want to publish it to iOS or Android after they've been testing it as a progressive web app for a while. So do you have, do you have like a submission fee when you, they push to Android or iOS? No. So, uh, you have to pay for an Apple or Android account if you want to, or sorry, Google play account, if you want to actually publish, but we don't have any additional fees. It's just once you're on the paying plan, you can publish as many times as you want. Tell me this. Uh, so we, we've like, we, did that like a one push thing like but we charge for it so like if you build in you can bring your designs or whatever and i actually really like i was watching i don't know like a twitter video or something i found you on twitter yeah and it's like i'm a fan of what i i don't i don't naysay competition or do anything right like i believe everyone can have their own million users doing whatever right like i'm a fan of the no code community more than I am anything else. So like we allow people, we allow people to like push, right? Like, and at the beginning it was push from our, to our account. Yeah. Right. Like, cause they would just all go to like our app store, right? Like our, like your V1, like under us. So it yep. saved them that hundred bucks. Oh, like, yeah, they're yeah. like, cool. We'll just have that hundred bucks as like a submission fee. Um, and we were doing all that shit manual, man. Yeah. Like, and I fucking love the idea of like, you, do you know the term Flintstone startup? Where it's basically just a very, <laughs> an interface on top of, you know, a couple of people doing yeah. the thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. you having an interface of something, <laughs> and but the background is you fucking manually like in a Google's Excel spreadsheet. Yep. yep. Like, do you have those stories? Like, when did you fully become that automated like cool you can go in you can use it you can uh you can design what you want plug and pull push and play like at what point did you reach that and like did you have one of those early stories where you're like i mean honestly when we when we did our launch in november we were still doing manual builds so for (laughs) ios and android i think android was out by then where it was fully automated but ios was still not because you're probably familiar, automating yeah. iOS is a lot harder just based on the fact that everything is proprietary and you have to do it on a Mac computer and you can't do yeah. it on a server easily and that kind of thing. But um, Did you set up a virtual private like Mac machine to do it? Yeah, or? so as a result now, all our builds are happening on a on a Mac mini server that's based yeah. somewhere in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, it all, it all happens very smoothly now, but it took a while to get there. And I think that was, 
that was probably sometime in December that that actually really got up and running for the fully automated builds. And then there were pieces even then that weren't quite ready yet. So doing the push notification certificates and doing things like that took a little bit longer to actually get working properly. And another thing was, I think getting for Apple, I don't know if, I don't know if you guys have this, but, um, for individual accounts, they always have two factor authentication enabled. And so for iOS, when you're logging in to actually do the automated build, you need to somehow get that two factor part automated as well, which is a real pain. It is a fucking pain in the end. Like that's why we thought, okay, it's easier just to push to our account. Yeah. Right. Like, so how you are, by the way, my favorite would-be corollary or competitor. Like, <laughs> so by, it's good to know. Like fully, full disclosure. Like, I absolutely, I like how your, we made it easy. For, like we we say designs into apps, right? But like, you actually have like a, it's almost like a designer background, like behind it, right? Like you have artboards, yeah. right? And I thought that was really cool. Like I go, oh, I get it. Like you get like the screen flow and stuff. And like, just in like my experience, I feel like that would confuse some, one of my people. Like, cause we started this accelerator for mm-hmm. like non-technical people to learn what those non-technical and no coders have. Yeah. Like, or what they want or what they, what they're easy at. And I figure out that like, no one knows how just something simple, like, I don't know if you came across some of these things too, and you can share, but like with a no coder or a non-technical person, they didn't even know that how hard the app store was or that an app needed mm-hmm. to be hosted itself. Yep. Right. Yep. So like all the apps that are like on a freemium model, right? Like are those apps, those apps aren't hosted. How do you handle that? Or how do you handle that education with your, like a lot of your customers? Yeah, so we've we've experimented around with a couple different things around how we price all of that. And we were initially getting some, I'd say when we were doing the agency stuff still, there wasn't really an issue because we could explain it to them. But when we first launched, you know, the more self-serve side, we were getting a lot of questions around, why do I keep paying you after it's in the app store? Isn't the app done? Isn't it finished? Uh, yep. And so what we had to really explain to people as well, yes, the front end of the app is in the app store, but it has all the data hosted in a database and you have to pay for that. And obviously also we collect analytics and share that data with you. So there's a lot of things that we're still doing in the background, as well as giving you the ability to make changes and publish those changes over time. Right. So yep. it's, it is definitely education. And I, I thought it was funny. Um, I can't remember if it was yours or somebody else where first it shows what does this cost if you're not doing it with no code? And then they let you see the actual pricing page. Was that, was that your? Yeah, I have that. <laughs> yeah. Like I have the alternatives. Yeah. So like, and it's funny when I have, I talk with investors or wherever, like I told you we're in the launch accelerator Yeah. and I go, I know the people that land on our stuff and convert. Yep. Right. Like I know those people. So like as much as people, people, research their competitors and research like what it is and like how they want to do it. And like, I just know we convert people that know it costs a shit ton of money to build an app or to outsource to India. And I've done all of these things. So it is funny that like, like once they go, I've tried all of these, Oh my God. And they talk to me in the chat or whatever it is. It's like those people are a little easier to convert, right? Like, have you experienced a lot of those people that go, I thought it was going to be 50 grand. Oh my God, I built this with a dollar. Yeah, I mean, it's for us, it's a little bit, 
it's a little bit of that and it's a little bit of the slightly more sophisticated people who just want to do it themselves and they didn't like the idea of outsourcing or you know having to pay anybody else because being like after launching the self-serve stuff it really shifted from originally a lot of people who were solo founders and had tried to find a CTO many times or had tried to pay a developer in India or Ukraine to build something yep. but it hadn't worked super well there was some of that um, but after launching it it seems like it's a lot more of the people who are just self-starters and sure they probably could have done that but they're just interested in the idea of building with no code and they like the idea that they can do it themselves and I think that that's that's really appealing to people so it's like you're saying it's a little bit different audience but I think they're both valid. I think the one you have probably pays more per person on average too. So it does like, and it's when you, that's a funny thing. That's a funny thing that you notice, which is like when they, when they believe and they know that their alternative was paying 60 K like, it's like, cool. 997 with a little concierge behind it. Yep. It's like, or you can downgrade to the 40 or so then you've anchored the price. right? Right. And you're like, so some things have worked out in our favor. Other things have not, right? Like having that service on top of the actual builder, right? Yeah. Um, where, I don't know. It's just, it's funny. We all start at a weird place and then build these, build these solutions. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back to how you started, right? Yeah, sure. How so you started this. Walk me through like uh, where you were a little bit in your journey. Yeah, I mean, when I... When I started the company, I had been working previously at a company called Synac, which is in a totally different space. They're a, they're basically a security company that helps large enterprises test their software and make sure there's no vulnerabilities in it. Um, but what I had basically seen is that there was a whole rise of design tools, things like Envision and Figma and Framer Studio sure. that basically let you build these really high fidelity prototypes. And I have a little bit of a design background in, additional, in addition to being a software developer. And so I had kind of interacted with those tools quite a bit and just seen the magic of you take a static mock-up and slice it up a little bit and add some links and you basically have a working app that doesn't really do anything, but it looks like it does. And so what I wanted to do when I first started working on this was basically take all that magic that they had and just add the actual functionality layer on top of it. So rather than being a static prototype, it was an actual working product and it had real data, it had text that wrapped on multiple lines and all that. So sure. the first version I built actually was, I think a little more similar to what you're building now. It was okay. uh, import from Sketch and you import from Sketch and hook everything up with data and then you know you have a working app. But uh, what, what I found pretty early on is that designers didn't seem to be the primary audience. And so the design import part kind of has taken a backseat as a result of that. Um, I feel but, like you have design though built so well into it. Like, right. So one thing is it does feel very natural for designers to use our product because it is yeah. based on sketch essentially. But at the end of the day, it's people who are a little bit more in the PowerPoint and Excel world who seem to be excelling at it versus people who are just purely visual designers. Interesting. Yeah. Like the majority of our customers have been like the no coders. They haven't necessarily been designers. Yep. But like I took the I took the path where it's like cool most of our people know how to design something. Yep. That's where a non-technical person always starts. Right? right? Right. So it's like not pushing the design or choosing for designers to do x or y or z. It's like these this is where you should start. This is how I started as a non-technical person. And then 
everything I farmed out at the beginning, you can just build in here. Right. In well, V1 I mean, or Adalo. That's that's kind of what I what I learned early on too was um, the people who are good at it are decent at design, but it's not that they have like a UX design or UI design background necessarily. It's that they yeah. pick that up as a self-starter kind of thing, right? It's, right. It's really that will to do something yourself that I think makes you successful on any of these platforms. I agree. So like, okay, so you started this, you worked at that company. How did this come about? How did you meet your co-founders? Yeah, so I, that was back in 2017. I, I quit my job at Senac and I went out on my own. Um, didn't really know that I was gonna do this yet. I had a couple ideas and this, is, this was definitely the front runner, but that was, it wasn't the only thing on my mind. And I kind of played around with a few things for a couple months and about three months in, I was like, okay, I need to actually do something. And this is, this is what I really want to do. It's, it combines all my strengths really well. So I decided to do it, decided I would build a prototype in a week and see where I could get. I, uh, about, about six months later, I figured out <laughs> I actually finally had something. So it took me a while and a lot longer than I thought it would, but got to the point where I was able to get into an incubator um, in Berkeley when I still lived in the Bay Area and was working on it just completely by myself but i got a couple of beta customers unpaid just you know users yep. that were that were building stuff and they were at that point actually building on their own like we hadn't adopted the agency model yet until my co-founders came on got um, but there were just a couple people super limited numbers and doing some cool stuff but it, it clearly needed a lot more finesse before it got anywhere and then about uh about a year into working on the project, I met my two co-founders who had been working on a similar project already on their own. So it was kind of like a meeting of the minds where they had thought about it a lot from a different perspective, but had a lot of the same things that they wanted to do and had, had designed out and stuff. And they, they basically had come from it from a more of an email marketing standpoint. So their previous company was an email marketing tool that okay. lets you basically, um, it allowed you to build out emails and you know surveys and that kind of thing for primarily targeted towards newspapers and television stations. But they basically saw that the tools they were building could be applied to building apps instead of just emails and surveys. And so they took what they had done and kind of pivoted it that way. But um, when I met David, one of, one of the two of them, he had quit his job three days before. And I met, it's kind of funny that you said you're in launch because I met him when I was at the launch, um, launch scale event. So no shit. I was... I was there in San Francisco, like in the mall. <laughs> it's it's hosted in a mall in San Francisco, and I was I met somebody who was like, "Hey, you know, I met this other guy who's working on something very similar to what you're doing. You should talk to him." So I asked her to give him or give me his name. Um, connected with him on LinkedIn and had like a two-hour video call where we just hashed everything out. And he was like, "Okay, you should come to my house and sleep on my couch." And so I, I flew out to St. Louis the next week and hung out with him a bunch. It's been the other the other co-founder who worked with David previously, he was still working at second street where they both used to work. Um, and he, cause he was a little higher up in the company, but he eventually was convinced to leave also and come and join us. And so by January of 2019, we were, we were all working together full time. And, and is it just you three at the company right now or have you hired? No, more so we've, we've hired a little bit. It was, it was just us three until June 1st of last year. And okay. then we hired, well, we brought on two interns last summer, but then we, we hired a designer who just was helping with that agency stuff a lot. And then okay. we hired a, another developer um, in June. And then the team is now 11 people. So it's expanded a little bit since then. Oh shit. Nice dude. Now we're, we're just trying to move as fast as we can. And you know, I don't even think we have enough right now, but. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's point of it. Like, so did you raise 
I think we talked about you raising a decent little chunk. Yeah, like, so I don't we, know if you... we, we raised a little bit of money um, in March, and then we raised a little bit more in December um, just to kind of fuel our growth. And obviously, it's, it's helped a lot. Um, it's enabled us to still have like over a million dollars in the bank at this point, so we have plenty of runway. Sure. Um, but it's, it still feels like all, everybody else in this space is moving super fast, and we have to try and keep up with that. Yeah, I think like I go back and forth with that. I really do. Like founder to founder, CEO to CEO of no code startup, which are probably competitors, is like you think that it is so funny to see this growth over everything. At the same time, I haven't seen anyone be more capital efficient than I have, right? Like I I don't know what it is. So like while all these other people are like trying to kill all the all these other people, I know I have more MRR than like a shit ton of like any no code people. Yeah. So it's it's so funny to see. At the same time, I have not marketed once really outside of like a couple email lists. Yep. And I've just like been growing organically. I think there's something to be said for that thoughtful growth versus right. like this essential what all these VCs bitch about, which is this land grab. And it's like land grab, motherfucker. Bubble has been around for six, seven years, I think. Mm-hmm. I think they are the eight. <laughs> eight years. They are still like I get customers. I'm sure you get customers from Bubble. Yep. Like yep. they are so technical. It's disgusting. Yep. So and like it's, it's funny. We now have, I think we, when we looked last, they announced sometime last week that they had 400,000 users. Um, and we've already, we've already gotten to almost 10% of that in <laughs> yeah. four or five, five months of being launched now. Right. So it's kind of sure. crazy to think about. That is nuts. That is insane. Right. Like I think we've crossed 200 paid users. Yeah. Nice. But like, I think our plans are like, it's weird. We've even found hundreds of people at our prices. You know yep. what I mean? We have 100 a month and we don't have a freemium. Yep. So like, and that's what I think is hilarious, right? Like we haven't used any like incentivizing referrals or any, any of that stuff. Yep. So like thinking about like what models are and I constantly get told, oh, your prices are high. Well, are they? Well, are they? Right? Like right. Is, is it a different niche? Are we serving a different kind of person, a more serious person? who will commit longer. Like I dude, one of our, I won't say our, but they're in the no code space. They essentially turn a Shopify store into an app. Mm-hmm. This is fucking insane. Like people ready for this. Their lowest price is $99 a month. Yep. And then they have a one ninety nine plan and a nine ninety nine plan. Yep. And you're like, you tell me that I'm too expensive, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> so you're thinking, and they just raised like five or six million and like they're like making money hand over fist. So like, have you, how have you figured your pricing, right? Like, and pricing no code tools, which all these are and all the, and I don't do as much research as I should, but like, I, I do love your product. If I was, if I was going to use any product that I wasn't building, like your V1 is obviously my favorite. <laughs> my favorite B dude is a Dalo. Like, I'm dead serious. I think it's a great product and like I would buy it if I wasn't building one. Well, so that's like good to hear. <laughs> it's like a 
So how did you figure out like pricing and the market? Were you listening to people? Like how, how did you figure that? Like, will prices change? How are you adapting and experimenting with yeah, prices? I, mean, I think no that it's, it's pretty important to us that, well, early on we had a higher price point that we do now. Um, it okay. started at about $200 a month and we obviously had the free plan that was always there, but we, we then kind of learned from the audience that $200 a month worked for some of our customers, but it didn't always work for all of them. Okay. And a lot of them just weren't, weren't ready to pay that because it seems, it seems more like a car payment than it does like an internet plan or a phone bill, right? Yeah, right. And so it's, I think it's really just psychological. If you're building a real startup, you're gonna be paying thousands of dollars a month for something regardless of what you're doing, right? But when you're just starting out, I think that it's important to have something cheap enough that people see as cheap and see as attractive and see as like within their range of affordability, um, but without without kind of realizing that it's gonna eventually be a lot more. But that being said, yeah. like we're trying to be we're trying to be very fair in how we're pricing it. And I think that some of the changes we're gonna make soon are gonna enable us to be even a little bit cheaper on the on the starting out end, so you can get some basic functionality for less than our current prices. Sure. But then also so that you can get more functionality, which a lot of people are asking for. Uh, but we don't have a good answer to right now by paying a little bit more and being on more of an enterprise type plan. Yeah, I I always thought that was I I think that's a smart strategy. Like especially when it comes to price experimentation, um, I think some people throw money at it, right? Like yeah. where we haven't raised anything, right. like next to nothing. The launch money and another like fifty k check, right? Mm-hmm. So for us, we've been able to get to our. 50k a month 60 something like that a month and recurring and guess how much we've churned total total churn dude total churn what is it two (laughs) percent damn that's that's pretty good two percent in like 12 months so like dude and i'm telling you i have a goal and those goals aren't necessarily aligned with a venture capitalist Right. right so like I have these things where I'm like, I want to create this really cool community. Like I want to create a really cool product and I want to make some money and I want to return some money right to the people who invested. So like sometimes those are misaligned with a venture capitalist. Right. 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 Where do you feel that pressure? Well, I guess was the one point, whatever you raised last year, was that all from VC money or angel money? And how do those pressures stack up to what you're building? Yeah, some some of that was from VC, and then the rest was Angel. Um, okay, close to half was Angel, and the rest was VC. So, we, I mean, I think that personally, I put the same kind of pressure on myself that VCs would. So that's actually not so, so much of a big deal. My background, I mean, I've been in the Bay Area prior prior to moving to St. Louis. I was in the Bay Area for nine years, and so it was pretty ingrained in me that you know you should do certain things, but. I mean, I, I definitely see the flip side of it too. Like you're saying, you know, you, you can build sustainably, you can grow sometimes just as fast in terms of revenue, even if you're a little less visible in the, in the public sphere, by just doing like a paid only type, type of approach. Um, but I think that what I think is, I don't think it's really placed any undue burden on us. I think that it's, it's probably helped us in terms of strategy a little bit because some of our investors are pretty, pretty good at what they do. But I do, I do see for a lot of other companies that that does have a huge impact. <laughs> Interesting. Like, I always think it's like, I, I just heard a, who, I forgot who I was talking with. 
Um, I don't know if it was a podcast guest or not. And they were telling me like some VC was like pushing, like went to zero on a $20 million a year company because it wasn't going to yeah. be a unicorn. <laughs> and you're I like, mean, Jesus Christ. Like I would take a $20, $30 million a year company. That might not be enough for VC, right? but like that's enough to create over a hundred jobs, like to create and sustain a hundred jobs versus it going out of business. Right. No, I a hundred percent agree with that. I think that sometimes there are weird types of incentives that can come into play right now for us. We, we don't really have too much of that just because the amounts that were raised were kind of small still. Sure. And, sure. You know, yeah. nobody, nobody, no single person has, you know, more equity than I do. Nobody has more than 25% of it. I think the, the biggest, venture stake is, is a lot smaller than that. So um, it's as a result, we've had a lot of flexibility. Sure. But um, so like, no, you're saying no one can like put their put their thumb on you and go, nope, you're going to do it this way. They don't have I mean, to say I, yet. I'm, I'm sure they had tried. And, and I'm sure that, you know, that would be if, if somebody thought we were doing the wrong thing, I'm sure they would voice that. But at the end of the day, we've tried to maintain some level of autonomy where we can make decisions as as the founders um and have those have those fly but i think that obviously that changes as you grow more um as you get bigger as you raise more money that's absolutely (laughs) that changes a little bit that's so true i guess that's a that's a really great point i i feel like i'm a control motivated founder right like versus like i don't have a co-founder you have two right so like i've been i've been this fucking rogue motherfucker like where I'm just like an entrepreneur and I'll fucking beat my head against the wall and I will, I will entrepreneur. Yeah. Right. Like I, I have been a broke entrepreneur for five years. You know, everything I get goes back into the company. Yep. I've bootstrapped everything. And outside of this, where I'm like finally looking at, at legitimately decent into the six figures of revenue mm-hmm. or sorry, like into the six figures of like in the bank account. Right. Like you probably, you have more in the bank, but you're probably burning more. Probably. Right. So (laughs) like, I think about like 11 people versus like what we're doing with like, I think we have four people. Yep. So like, and I don't even see, I don't even, I try to like see what's coming down the pipeline, what's coming down. And are we meeting the demand with the resources we have? And is there like a fluctuation there? Is there like an inflection point? How do you see, the the no code ecosystem coming down versus what you can actually match that demand with with your product. I mean, in terms of in terms of you're saying what is the market need? How do we yeah how do we match that? How, how do you match that market demand? Do you see what you're like? For instance, I'm thinking there is a product that you can build right, and you can only build so much, yeah. right? You can only make it extensible so much. You can only build so many modules because one thing I learned and you probably learned this as well um, was you can build 80% of apps with like 20 functions, right? Changing words to it, right? Like list views, you can have different views of things, right? Which is fine. It's just styling. Yep. But like, and you can make 80% of the world's apps with 20%, right? So it's funny that like at some point you're like, what do we make these apps AR VR? Okay. Those are two modules, right? Or two blocks that we can drag and drop and play. 
what then becomes the product, right? Is right. it the brand? Is it market demand? Because the demand is there to build things. So like, is it just brand and marketing? How do you see that product getting to a certain point? And then it just becomes in my head and you can tell me what you think, but to me, it just becomes sales and retaining the people that you ha currently have on. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, there's a couple of things that we think about in terms of how we, how we build a long-term durable product that will be a market leader for the long term. And I think that definitely we feel like our, product itself matters and the quality of the way that you build the apps, the interface, all that stuff. But I think that really you have to build some kind of flywheel that will actually mm -hmm. generate more value as more people are there. And I think that the things that will will do that over time are just building that ecosystem and that community. And so having really trying to get more and more people involved in building knowledge around the tool, yeah. uh, that will really that will really build value long term. And then we also have some product features we're working on that when they come out, I think we'll add a lot of the kind of those kinds of effects also. Yeah, absolutely. Like how much runway do you give yourself? Like, do you actually think, okay, we have at some point we need to get to, we need to pay back our investors. We need to do X, Y, Z. Like, where do you see that journey going as far yeah. as like raising, are you currently raising more money? Like where are you in that fundraising journey? Yeah. So we're, we're not really currently raising money now. We, we closed a little bit of money at the beginning of this year. Okay. Um, we, and we have enough money to last us a while at this point. And honestly, at the, at the growth rate we're at currently, we could theoretically last forever by becoming profitable. Amen, sometime, son. Sometime next year. But um, Amen. We'll, we'll just have to decide at that point what makes sense and whether it makes sense to take on more money and a little more dilution in order to grow faster or keep growing at a sustainable rate. But do you have do you have like uh when you raised that the did you raise it in different times was it like all one note yes yeah, so we, like... we took a couple of notes um at the last year at, at about this time last year and then we you know did did more in december so oh got you okay so it wasn't like one big price round that lasted a year or something no i mean it, it was it ended up culminating in a price round but it started out as notes Got you. Okay. That is, that is some of the shit that I'm just like, as a peer driven entrepreneur, right? Like I need, I, it is everything. I've gotten fired from every job <laughs> that I've ever had, man. Like I just want to build shit. I just want to do, I want to build shit and I want to sell that shit. Yep. Like that's it. That's all. I, I don't want to mess around with investors really, honestly. Right. Like if it's easy and it's there, terrific. I'll let you come in. Right. But if it's, if it's like, I got to sing and dance for you. You know what I mean? Like, I feel yep. like every single, at every single hour or every single minute I spend with investors, I could have been spending chasing customers. Yeah, like, I mean, I definitely, I definitely think there's some of that, and I think that early on, I got probably a little too swept up in talking to people, talking to investors a lot. Um, yeah. Okay. Around maybe December, January, February of 2018, 19. Um, when we clearly were not going to raise from investors at that point, even though we had the team, you know, we had the, the three co-founders were there, but we yep. didn't really have any paying customers and we didn't really have, you know, the product wasn't fully launched. So there wasn't really anything that would generate a lot of interest from investors, but we still put a lot of effort into that. And I think that was, that was probably a mistake. Really. There's a point where it goes from being easy or it goes from being really hard to talk to people 
and you're trying to just figure out the pitch and everything you say is a little bit off no matter what you say to it being a lot easier and everything you say is kind of in the right direction regardless of what you say right so sure i think there's it's it's a combination of when your pitch gets good enough but also just your product hits a certain milestone and all of a sudden it's appealing and it doesn't really make sense to try and raise money before that and that's a lot of a lot of my friends who have gone through this journey as well like i've i've kind of tried to tell them you know, you will see from your first five investor meetings that either people will always tell you, oh, it takes 100 investor meetings to get any interest. But <laughs> it's the reality is it takes 100 meetings because it takes so long to actually get to the point where your product and your market fit and all that are are actually ready for investment uh, um, yeah. where, where people will care. And at once it, once that flips, it's a lot different and it's easy to get people. But it's you can you can beat your head against the wall for a long time without anything happening and you won't have made it you won't have made any progress by doing that <laughs> tell me this like your first significant how is it public how much you've raised can we say how much you've raised in i whole? don't think it's been announced yet okay you don't have to say that so like your first little amount like what yeah. was that what was that what was the little amount i mean like, the, the very first money that we raised was just me luckily i had a friend who worked so it's all the money we've raised has been through introductions, um, as, cool. as most people will probably tell you. But I had a friend I went to school with who started a fund um, out in Berkeley that was called the House Fund, and okay. they started an incubator. And so I got into their incubator. And I was, it was just me and an idea and really no, not much code written, um, not, in, not any functional product at that point. But I raised $20,000 and okay. got a little, bit of, a little bit of support from you know AWS and that kind of stuff. But... That was that was easy, and so I thought that the rest of it would be too. And then raising the next, you know, the next money after that took over. I think it was it was about a year after that that we raised any more money, and probably a year and a half before any significant <laughs> amount. So the, this is this is the struggle bus I love most. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. and you, so you started this by yourself, right? Yeah. So I was I was originally pretty against having co-founders, and I I just thought like, why oh, would cool. I want to give up control? That right. was that was initially how I was too. Um, you know, I think, I think it added a lot, bringing the co-founders on and just enable us to move a lot faster because there's definitely areas that I was weak in, Yeah, but, sure. um, I, you know, I, I was running it by myself for the first year and we got to the point where we had, I think two or three apps launched in the app store mm-hmm. during that, during that first year. So it, it was pretty cool to see some of those, but it was just, it was also very slow and Every time I worked with a customer, it meant that we weren't writing code. So, <laughs> yeah. So you were able to what raise money based on like that somewhat agency model then? So yeah, when when I raised when we, sorry when we raised the the larger amount um, a year and a half after the first <laughs> the first incubator check, yeah, um, that was all based on the agency model. So it's basically we're we we just said we're going to try and get you know we've already got our first cohort of ten people, and then we're going to try and you know get a bunch more and and raise from there. We always had the vision of, of being a self-serve product though. So that was kind of sure. seen yeah. as a temporary thing, but it enabled us to show some metrics and some progress, you know. Did tell me this, like I've given you a bunch of things that I am obviously a contrarian on, right? Yep. Like I have told, I don't care what, dude, I care what VCs think if it aligns what I think. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yep. I won't, I know that I go into a meeting and I'm like, cool. It is if here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm building. Here's where I think it could grow. Here's where the market's growing. If you like that, terrific. If you if the end of the at the end of the day you like making money, you yeah. want a return on your investment. I'll help you get there. 
But if you're going to sit here and tell me bullshit about how I need to be a unicorn or die, I don't agree with that. I just completely disagree with it. Right? Like let most of their exits are hundred million, 50 million, right? Like they exited probably for PR. And I have a lot of those not boring business tendencies. Like I just, Mm -hmm. I won't sacrifice like who I am. Like when you brought on two co-founders, uh-huh. Do you feel like a little bit chipped away? Cause you were like, fuck, I, I <laughs> wanted to do this by myself. I was a solo founder. I wanted to do it that way. At what stages or places can you point to that are like, you might have made a decision going, ah, I kind of feel like I'm not being authentically me or saying something that's me, but it's gotten you farther or it's hurt you. Yeah. I mean, I think that before, so before I brought them on was, was kind of a difficult time just because I, uh, you know, I, I was working on it by myself for quite a while. I was living in my apartment and not really, not really doing much outside of just work. Um, mm-hmm. and so it was really like we had, we had got, I mean, I, I, at that point, it was in a wee, but had gotten some significant progress and built a product that was a lot of the basics of what we have now. Um, but I was, I was spending a lot of time interacting with customers and, doing things that didn't feel like they were driving the company vision towards success, even if it was, even if it was at that point driving individual customer accounts, you know, I was, I was doing a lot of customized stuff just to get these very small number of customer accounts to be successful and to be published. Right. Got you, yep. And I feel like at that point it was a big internal struggle of, you know, how do I actually get my time back so I can build the real core platform and actually get this thing to be successful, right? Because I knew, sure. I always knew that you had to build certain things before it would be generally applicable to a lot more people. And so there were there were a number of decisions like we, I was considering adding translation support for internationalization when we only had two customers. And in retrospect, that seems insane <laughs> because sure. just because one of those two customers really needed it, right? And I was like, yeah. eventually ended up dropping that customer and said, you know, the app you're trying to build is going to cost a hundred thousand dollars to build. And you know, I'm not going to shell out that money to do it. It's not, it's not <laughs> on me to build all these customized things you need. Like right. now we, now we actually have most of them. I think we still don't have the internationalization, but we have pretty much everything else in it, like ACH payments and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. But I think, I think you have to listen to what your early customers are saying, but you have to also get enough early customers that not a single one can individually like steer you too much. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with that, right? Like I won't make something unless I too think it's something that I can sell multiple times or it's something we can add to the builder or whatever. But like, unless I hear it 10 to 12 times, like I won't, like I'll go, all right, once, all right, twice. So like it becomes this group think or herd like philosophy around building a new module or building a new feature set like within the builder. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of also wish that I just did some sort of launch earlier. I mean, I know that the product wasn't polished. I know that it wasn't perfect or nearly as good as it is now, but I feel like getting that early feedback would have been would have been good because now a lot of what people are doing doesn't really require things that we didn't have then. It's just it's just that we didn't get the necessary like kind of lift off until later on. And I think that the the whole no code movement has helped that a ton. So I can't really, it's hard to say what would have happened at that point if that's, that wasn't really a thing yet, but it's, I, I think you have to get out there and kind of get real serious numbers because if you have 10 people using it, they might all not like it just because they're not the right 10. But if you have a couple hundred or a thousand, then it's a lot easier to actually see those things. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Okay, I want to get two takes. Well, I actually three little things left, and then you can leave, right? <laughs> Sounds good. So, all right. So the first thing is when you're you're a new company, you're one of the new no code players. Like, uh, I think from my re- well, I guess Glide might be newer, right? Yeah, they're they're about the same age, but they launched they launched I think officially a few months before us. But they were founded around the same time. Yeah, like last fallish or something, summer fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just, I just, I don't know about them. I can't get behind turning a Google sheet into a, like I, like that story or that message. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's, uh, I don't know, but like the founders I know sold like a company to Microsoft for like half a billion dollars or something. <laughs> right. So like, obviously they're going to find investment in marketing and everything else. Um, I just don't have that pedigree, uh, which always leads to a chip on my shoulder, I think. And neither do I yet. We'll hope this will be the one. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. This will be your win. Um, especially after being on the Not Boring Business podcast. Right. Uh, so how do you look at marketing, right? Like, how do you look at spending your marketing dollars? Ver- like, if I was an investor and I'd say, cool, I'm going to give you a million dollars. And you go, all right, well, we need to spend half a million on product and hiring a couple people and building the product out. And here's where we want to market yeah. Are you a Facebook ads guy? Are you an Instagram ads guy? What's an outside of the box take on like where you would market or how you would build that community side of what you're doing? I mean, so we're we're definitely doing some of that because I think everybody is doing it a little bit. Um, sure. But we don't really see the majority of our growth coming from Facebook ads, even though probably the majority mm-hmm. of our spend is currently on split between ads and the various some of the some of the like paid partnerships with no code communities as well. Okay. Um, but the majority of our users really just come from word of mouth and referrals from other people who are using the platform and kind of organic sources like that. So we've really kind of tried to put as much effort as we can into building our communities, both on Slack and on the forum, and you know, really building a big Twitter following and that kind of thing, which is which has helped a lot and made kind of multiplied everything else we do, because that means we don't have to spend as much on ads. We can we can kind of get higher quality customers even from just those existing customers tweeting about things or posting it to their yeah. networks. How, have you done like Twitter ads at all? Like what? A- yeah, we, we did do a little bit of that, which is okay. funny because the, the guy who was consulting with us initially was like, you know, you don't want to do Twitter ads. Twitter ads are never any good. They have super high conversion prices compared to other ads because they don't actually have a, they don't actually have like a conversions based um, metric. So you can only do yep. pay-per-click, I think, but okay. It was funny because they actually converted at a much higher rate than than any of the others. Oh, interesting. See, because because we already had that audience. Like we already had a lot yeah. of people on Twitter, so we had a good base. How many followers? Um, I think at that point we had only like a thousand or so, but now we have okay. several thousand. And yeah, like I have, dude. Honestly, I would abandon. This is just me. I would abandon like all social, like just I I have no following, yet like a shit ton of revenue. Right. Like it's, it's so weird. You either it's, you're either going to deploy cash to something that's ridiculous like Twitter and you're like, cool. So we grew 5% and we spent $50,000 on Twitter and Instagram. Right. And you're like, is that really worth it? Or you start thinking outside of the box. I like what you were talking about with like, um, uh, referrals. Have you tried incentivized referrals yet? like a double-sided referral or anything? So we've, we've done that a little bit with influencers. So like okay. influencer marketing is something we kind of jumped on early. And influence, like people don't think of influencer marketing in our space at all. 
But Got there it. are a yeah. lot of these like agency types who build a lot of things in no code tools and you know with code, but we've given a lot of them discount codes. And so okay. that kind of thing helps a lot. Um, Have you gone straight out pay them? Yeah, so we, we give them codes that basically ah, ah. when you sign up through their link it's like a affiliate basically oh so you haven't like paid paid them and affiliate paid them um we we have so some of the no some of the no code tutorial sites we've paid for you know making tutorials and that kind of stuff but we haven't we i think try to separate the ones that are affiliate versus paid yeah sure okay okay got you yeah that makes sense okay yep. third and final investor question yep if i'm an investor coming at you uh an i secret host podcast host i like this move investor had on here jeremy oh it's so funny to say jeremy on my own podcast um san francisco to st louis what the fuck yeah i mean i i went from paying i think it was three thousand a month for a one bedroom and or it was 2900 a month at san francisco okay to uh 825 in st louis for a one bedroom (laughs) And my place has twice as tall of ceilings and it looks a lot nicer. So <laughs> there's that. And I mean, I think that the three of us co-founders can afford to live on the same salary that one person could afford to live in San Francisco. So oh, it's, just, it's insane the difference. Um, I think that like when, when you said, yeah, you have 11 people, that's, that's pretty different LA and the Bay Area and New York versus somewhere in the Midwest. Sure. Um, just because of the fact that everything else trickles down and it's all a lot a lot more affordable if you're based in a different market. I think that we couldn't have really timed it better based on this whole coronavirus thing mm-hmm. because now it doesn't really seem to matter as much where you're based. But uh, I've really I've really kind of enjoyed being out of the Bay Area. And I think that when I was there, I didn't really, being supposedly an insider, you know, I went to UC Berkeley. I went, I lived in San Francisco for five years. I should have had ins in every network, but being an engineer and not really being kind of in the elite in San Francisco, sure, you don't really get a lot of the benefits that people talk about. And also I think it's harder to stand out as one of the kind of darling companies that everybody really cares about because there's uh, so many companies overall. Whereas right. if you're in a different market where there's only a hundred startups in the whole you know metropolitan area, then it's a lot easier to be the top one, right? Dude, yeah, that's, that's a great point. Is there, is there, but why St. Louis? Yeah, so I mean, obviously my co-founders were already here, so that was that oh, was okay. a big draw. But um, in addition, you know, we found there was a pretty good set of universities here. WashU is one of the top-ranked yep. business schools and has a really good computer science program, yeah. um, as well as some of the other schools around here. And then also the Arch Grants program provides a fifty thousand dollar non-dilutive grant, which you know helps definitely hire a couple people. So that that was a big draw as well. Absolutely, dude, that's cool. Like, and I'm again. If it's not your V1, dude, I'd use Adalo. Well, so like glad to hear. <laughs> all all our other contemporaries and and uh, corollaries and competition can suck it. Like, <laughs> but Jeremy to Jeremy, founder to founder, I, you have a great product. Well, when I checked out some of your example apps, those look pretty good too. So we gotta. Oh man, thanks, dude. <laughs> like, oh, I appreciate that. Um, thank you so much for coming on. What do you want to hawk? What do you want to, where you, where, where can people find you? I mean, our Twitter is definitely the, the biggest spot or just sign up for an account and play around with the tool. Okay. And that's at Adalo, A-D-A-L-O.com, correct? That's correct. Yeah, you got it. I even second endorse them. So, <laughs> uh, and I'm a no code guy, right? So like, 
try them both. They're both they're both terrific. Uh, thank you so much, Jeremy. You are a terrific individual. You too. Thanks for the interview.